Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And they had lived there about ten years, sorry, after they had lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung, clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realised that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. 
Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So far our reading. Thank you, John. Uh, Keep your Bibles open. It is a familiar story, perhaps, to to many of you. And yet there's some great nuances in here, Um, some really important details to pick out. So please follow along. Uh, And so have your Bible handy and nearby. Now, I want to start with a question for you. Uh, The question is, how how do you know what's best for you? How do you know what's best for you? Um... Are you sure that that is, in fact, best for you? And keep that question in the back of your mind. Uh, Growing up, we had a pet cockatoo. Now, if you've never had one, cockatoos are the very best pets ever. Just ask Melinda. She's a massive fan of cockatoos. Now, our cocky in particular, uh, we, we quickly learned that he loved sunflower seeds. You know, you'd give him bird mix, which has a few sunflower seeds in it, and he would quickly sort through the whole lot and pick out every single sunflower seed and just throw the rest on the ground, uh, just hoof it into the bottom of his cage. So, of course, then he's not eating, so we'd fill it back up and give him more bird mix, and he'd pick out all the sunflower seeds again and chuck out the rest. So after a while, because we're slightly smarter than a cockatoo, we figured out, well, that's a waste, all that seed's being thrown out. Let's just give him sunflower seeds. That's what he wants. That's, that's what he really likes. That, that's going to work best for him. He's going to eat enough. And he was in heaven. I mean, you should have seen his face. when we, Yeah, he, he loved it. He thought it was great. Until he had a stroke. <laughs> or a heart attack. It's hard to tell with birds. He survived. Uh, but it turns out that birds cannot live on sunflower seeds alone. Um, like who'd have thought? Uh, apparently they're unhealthy. What Cocky thought was best for him uh, almost killed him. <laughs> Cocky had to go cold turkey. Sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't help that. <laughs> I wrote that line and I was laughing in my office. I had, to, yeah, I had to include it. But here's the question. Are you any smarter than a cockatoo? Are you any smarter? Uh, if you're a parent, you'll know that there's certain things that you have to put boundaries around for the sake of your children. Um, otherwise, they'll, they'll binge on them, they'll indulge, and there's going to be consequences. But what about you? Uh, there's no one to put boundaries around your life. Where do you set them? What's, what's good for you? Do you know what's best for you? Maybe, maybe a better question, what is best for you? What do, you, what do you think is, is good for you good, to, good for you to look for, to strive for, to, to try and attain? Maybe, maybe it's good health or, or good fitness. Maybe it's uh, a certain level of happiness and contentment. Maybe it's satisfaction in what you turn your mind to and try to do. Maybe it's a certain family culture or, or family ideal. Maybe there are certain achievements. What is best for you? And what happens when life gets in the way of those things? Because it has a funny habit of doing that, doesn't it? We, we aim for what's good, we aim for what's best, and life interrupts. And so what's best then? 
How do we deal with that? Well, it turns out that Ruth 1 actually asks and answers those questions for us. Because it turns out that there is actually a best for you. And it's a really good best. It can be found and life, no matter what happens in your life, can't interrupt that best. Can't get in its way. So what is it and how can you have it? Well, that's what we're going to find as we unpack this story this morning. Now, as we noted already, this story happens in the worst of times. We're told that right there at the start. Look with me at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, or judges judged, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Uh, as Karina noted before, this is in the time of the judges. Now, we looked at the judges a couple of months back, and what we saw was that this was a really dark time in Israel's history. The, the book of Judges kind of takes an, an overall picture of where the nation is at. It starts with them disobeying and rejecting God, and from there, it's all downhill. The nation spirals into disobedience, away from God, into violence. And the, the last chapters of the book of Judges, which detail that, are, are, are terrible. They're actually just really hard to, eve. They're, they're, to read. They're so bad. And the refrain we pick up at the end of that book is, Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And the consequences were utter disaster. So now, in the middle of that time, we find ourselves reading this story in Bethlehem. And on top of all of that, there's a famine. I mean, in itself, a really bad thing, you know, to, to, to not have food. Obviously terrible, but even worse because of where they are. Because remember, this is God's promised land. And all through the Old Testament to this point, God's been saying, this land is good. This land is going to be lush and abundant. And when you get there, it's going to be wonderful. But he also said, when you get there, if you reject me, if you disobey me, there will be consequences. And one of them was famine. See, this is not just a picture of bad weather cycles. It's not like it was just an El Nino year or whatever they have up there. This is clearly God saying to his people, you have done the wrong thing. There is famine in the land where there should be abundance because you have gone astray. You have disobeyed. And so God is punishing them. There's a, there's a terrible irony here. Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. You know, of the place, the, the, the promised land, this place was supposed to be the place with food, the house of bread, and yet there is no bread. So what does your average Israelite do? They go somewhere where there is bread. They go to Moab. Now that should be, that should be setting off an alarm in your head, if you're familiar with the, the, the pattern of the Bible, because running away from punishment is a bad idea. That's not how punishment works. That's not what God does it for. You know, if this is a spiritual issue at play here, then a spiritual solution is required. But not to this family. They run away. Look at verse 2. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, 
and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech is a great name. Prospective parents, great name. It means, my God is king. That's a good name. That's a really good name. Now, you would think a man with a name like that would stick with his God, who is king. Uh, Would be able to trust his God, who is king, even if things were difficult. Would be able to make decisions for his God, who is king. I mean, his God is king. His God is in control. So surely he can trust him. And yet when hard times come, he doesn't. He takes his wife, Naomi, which means pleasant or sweet, and his sons with him, and they leave. Now, his sons' names are a bit of a hint at perhaps what's to come. Marlon and Kilion essentially mean uh, dying and plague. <laughs> it's, like having, it's like saying uh, terminal illness and COVID-19. You know, there, there's some bad names for your kids. And off they go to Moab, which is like moving to North Korea for a job opportunity. Like, it's not just another place to live, it is a bad place to live if you're an Israelite. Why do they go? Because Elimelech figures there is food there. I need to look after my family. This is best for us. This is best for us in this time. The other day I was uh, working on my bike, um, which is a mistake in the first place. I should know better than that. But anyway, I I had a cable that had some slack in it and I figured I know what the problem is, I know where the problem is, I can probably fix the problem. Uh, And doing that, I can save myself, you know, a considerable amount of money. That's that's a good idea. Uh, So I pulled it apart, I tried to do the adjustment and I made it worse. I mean, you knew that was coming. I, I made it worse. I couldn't even get it back together in the end and so I had to sticky tape it all back together and send it very sheepishly back to the bike shop and say, please, please fix what I made. (laughs) And it was more expensive. I thought I knew best and it did not end well. And so too for Elimelech. Look at verse 3 to 5. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and husband. This, this bright idea, what looked like the right decision, ends disastrously. You know, he goes for the good and the safety of his family and it all falls apart. First of all, he dies. He can't even look after his family anymore. He, he, he essentially abandons them. His sons marry. They marry Moabitesses, um, which is a big no-no for Israelites, but I guess they're surrounded by them. They haven't really got a great deal of choice. But it doesn't matter because then they die as well. I mean, it's an utter disaster, isn't it? Now we have this woman with her daughters-in-law in this foreign and hostile land, and they're alone. This is, this is awful. They are women in this patriarchal society, utterly vulnerable. We don't always know what's best for us. That's what it's telling us, isn't it? We don't always know what's best for us. We have our default, don't we? Our default is the easy path. 
or the path of least resistance or the most pragmatic or most logical path. But that is not always what's best for us. Because what this is saying is any choice that takes us away from God, no matter how logical or how pragmatic or how easy it is to rationalize, it is the wrong choice. Any choice that takes you further from him is the wrong choice. And it will end badly. Maybe not right away. Maybe it will take years and years. But it will end badly. Because if it is best to be near God, which is what this story shows us, then any move away from him is not best. In fact, it is bad. Moving from God, decisions that take us from him are never good for us. Now, it's at this point in the story that we we realise... Uh, Elimelech's not the main character. That actually comes as a bit of a surprise because usually the male character first introduced is the main character. But he's not, clearly, because he's off the scene. But neither is Ruth the main character. Uh, The book's named after her, but she's actually not the main one here. The main character is Naomi. And Naomi is in a bad way. She is in a foreign land with foreign ways, foreign gods. It is a male-centred and led society and she has no support, no protection, no government assistance. She has nothing. But she does have some good news. Look at verse 6. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Uh, it depends on your translation, but the, the words are literally, God had visited them. God had visited. We don't read, the people had repented, so God came and relented from the punishment. We don't read that at all. Instead, what we read is, God just visited. God came, God gave food, God showed grace to his people. And they were able to receive it because they'd stayed there. But Naomi was far away. And so she sets herself to leave. And her daughters-in-law resolved to come too. Look at verse 7 through 9. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. She tries to send them back. I mean, she even gives them this really rich blessing saying, look, there could be a hope for you. There could be a life for you yet in Moab. There's a chance you'll find a husband that you'll reestablish, that you'll be able to live there and live there well. But they're resolved. Look, look at how they respond. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. 
even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. I mean, Naomi's point is clear, isn't it? There is no future with me. There is nothing I can offer you. There is nothing I can give you. If you come to my land, you'll be the foreigner. You'll be the outcast. You'll be the one outside. There's no land. There's no hope. There's no husband for you who might provide and protect. There's no future for you. So why come? It just makes good sense, doesn't it? And Orpah's convinced. But not Ruth. She gives what's one of the best speeches in the whole book. Listen, listen to what she says, verse 15. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. I mean, it's great, isn't it? Isn't that a wonderful line? Isn't that an incredible thing to say? It's just so bold. It's so confident. I mean, lots of us, lots of us have come from migrant backgrounds. Maybe, maybe you emigrated. Maybe your parents emigrated. And you you listen to those stories, and their stories are great. I think their stories are amazing. You know, they they come from from this uh, to this foreign land. They come uncertain. They come without much for them. They don't know many people here, and, and yet they come and they establish. I think that's a remarkable story. And yet, how much more Ruth? You know, most of the migrants I know came from the ashes of Europe, from a place where there was nothing in the hope of a new land with potential and with money and resources and hope. But Ruth, she came from a good land. And she went to a place where there was no hope, was no future, which promised nothing. I mean, every security Ruth had ever known in her life was back in Moab. Her family, her religion, her language, her society, her home, it's all there. And yet she chooses to go. And she goes with no assurance at all. She understands that. It's not like Naomi's words went over her head. She knows Naomi has nothing to offer. She knows no one in that land. She knows nothing of that land, save that she'll be an outsider there. And yet she goes. Why? Why? What drives her? Well, it's actually right there at the centre of her speech. There's five things that she mentions, five lines there. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Where you die, I will die. Where you're buried, I'll be buried. That's four. Because right at the middle is the key line, the centre of it all. Your God will be my God. That's the centre of her speech. That's the line that brings it all together. 
your God will be my God. See, Ruth is going, yes, to uncertainty. She knows that. But here's why she's going. She's going, trusting God. Just compare the characters we've seen so far. Compare her and Elimelech. So Elimelech, he went to Moab. It looked like the right, it looked like the wise choice. He went from no food to food, from no life to life. Ruth, on the other hand, Ruth goes from Moab to Israel. It looks wrong. It looks really foolish. From having a future to no future, from having the hope of life to no life. They're they're completely opposite, aren't they? And yet, what is it that sets them apart? What's the difference between these two? Well, Elimelech went from being in God's place to being outside of God's place. Whereas Ruth went from being outside of God's place towards God, towards his place. Now, let's not pretend Ruth was you know a complete believer here we what does she actually know of God probably not much maybe maybe very little and yet even with that she still goes and she's commended you know, she's the positive character in this story she's the one who's made the, the right choice because she has made the best choice she has made the choice to be near God That's what this story is saying. It's not saying be like Ruth. It's saying it is best to be near God. It is best for you to be near God. Now that doesn't mean that everything in your life is going to be rainbows and unicorns. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't mean that all your fears and uncertainties will be taken away in that moment. But it is still best to be near God. And yet you cannot do that without wholehearted trust in God. And that means trust in God, and trust in God alone. Now we might think, well, yeah, I, I can do that. I can, I can trust God. But in reality, in reality, we're people who like to hedge our bets, aren't we? <laughs> I'll trust God, but, you know, I've got a bit saved away in the bank account to tide me over. I'll trust in God, but... Yeah, my, my job, you know, is pretty secure even in the midst of a pandemic. I'll trust in God, but, but my qualifications, they'll always count for something. My, my family, my support network, they'll always be there for me, you know, in, just in case God happens to fall through. I mean, okay, we might not be so crass. We might not think in particularly those terms. But it's often how we live, isn't it? Yes, I can trust God, but at least I've got all this other stuff to fall back on. But that's not how we're to think. God is best. And to be near God means trusting nothing but God. Now, we're told not to do that. You know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. But here we can. And here we not only can, we have to. We need to. It is best to be near God, but it means being near God and only God. Trusting him alone. Now it feels like finally we can breathe a sigh of relief for Naomi. Yes, Moab was a disaster, but now she's back. She's safe, home, all of that is behind her. And yet not in her own mind. Look at verse 19 through 21. 
So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Don't call me Naomi because I'm not pleasant. My life is not pleasant anymore. Uh, call me Mara, which means bitter, because my life is bitter, because God's been against me, because God has afflicted me, and my life is terrible. I had much, now I have nothing. <laughs> Never mind, poor old Ruth, you know, kind of standing off to the background, being like, hello. Like, not in Naomi's eyes. I mean, it's not the return we'd expect, is it? You know, we, we, we'd kind of expect, maybe not triumph, but at least relief. Oh, I'm, it's so good to be back. I'm so glad I'm here. But that's not what we get, is it? We get negativity, we get pain, we get, we get anger. And yet, right at the end, we get a glimpse of hope. Just a hint of something good. Look at verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabites, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Isn't that a great way to end a chapter? Take a pause, come back next week. Barley harvest is here. It's not only a good time, obviously, in the Israelite character, uh, calendar, sorry, but it's also a promise, isn't it? Something's happening. There, there's, there's something coming, and there's another chapter to this story. Remember how we started? No food in Bethlehem, the house of bread. But now it's the barley harvest. There's food, there's promise, there's something ahead yet. Yes, there's been pain. Yes, there has been loss. Yes, there's been terrible suffering. But Naomi is in the right place. She is in the right place because there is a good chapter to come. There is better ahead. Now, why is she there? How did she get to be here? Well, she actually says it. It's kind of hidden away, but it's there in verse 21. The Lord brought me back. Now, in the original, the word order is a bit different. That sits at the end of the sentence for emphasis. The Lord brought me back. Yes, God has allowed and brought all sorts of awful and horrible things in her life. But, as she rightly points back, she's here now. She's in this right place because the Lord has brought me back. Even in that hardship, even in her loss and suffering, God has been working. And she's back because of him. She's in his land again in his place and by implication nearer to him and that has given all of her suffering to this point meaning that has made it count uh, when we lived in Geelong um, I was going to Bible college studying to be a minister um, but I also had a job uh, <laughs> A real job. Uh, I had a job as a uh, as a bartender, so a kind of real job. Um, but 
whilst I was, I was serving in, in uh, doing that work, I, the opportunity for me to do a cert for in hospitality came along. It was some government scheme. I, I could do it for free. Um, so I thought, well, why not? Like, if you get to do it for free, why not give it a crack? So then, all of a sudden, I was studying twice. I was studying two things. And one of them I was loving, one of them not so much. The Cert four was way more work than I expected. Uh, lots and lots of readings, lots and lots of exercises, heaps and heaps of effort. Bible college was also a lot of work. Lots and lots of readings, lots and lots of assignments, lots and lots of effort. And yet the Cert four never motivated me. I just I couldn't get into it because I knew that I was investing all this time, investing all this effort for nothing. Because in a couple of months I was quitting my job and I would probably never work in hospitality again. All that effort for nothing in the long run. Bible college though kept me engaged. Because I knew that that study counted. I knew that I would keep on using it. I knew I'd still be using it today. And so all that effort paid off. All that effort was worth it in the long run. And so it is with our trials. So it is with our sufferings. Now we, 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 we try to value them. We, we, we want to value our suffering. We, we say all sorts of things, don't we? Uh, my suffering made me who I am today. Um, I, I learned so much of myself through my suffering. And yes, that, that's, that's true. We do learn those sorts of things. But here's the thing. Unless your suffering brings you closer to God, in the end, it is for nothing. In the end, it's wasted. Because if you suffer, if you go through hardship and it brings you closer to God, it's worth it. And it's worth it because being close to God lasts. There's no expiry date on that. It goes on forever. Your suffering, therefore, has eternal meaning. And that's why God allows suffering. Uh, C.S. Lewis called it God's megaphone. Now he is yelling, he is calling out to us, come back, come close, it is better for you to be near me. Now that's all well and good. But how do you know? How can you really trust that that is true? How can you know that God is good? I mean, especially in light of the cost and commitment that he's calling us to. How can we be sure about that? It's a lot, isn't it? Well, the answer is you can because he's been there too. Here's how Philippians 2 speaks of it. It says, Christ Jesus made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do you hear what that's saying to us? The, the word literally there is emptied himself. Isn't that so meaningful in, in the context of Ruth? Jesus emptied himself. He, he left those riches of heaven. He left the perfection and glory that he lived in. He left it not because he had to. He gave it all up willingly. And he did so because he trusted God. He trusted God enough to leave it all behind for God's sake to do what God was calling him to. And it cost him. It cost him absolutely everything. His life was hard and full of suffering. His death was worse as he voluntarily went to the cross and suffered 
and died. And he did it out of obedience for his father, love for his father and love for you. Love for you who had rejected God. Love for you who had wandered from God. Love so that you could be forgiven. So that the way for you to return could be opened. So that you could be near God. It is best to be near God and it is possible to be near God because Jesus has opened that way. We look at Jesus and we see how good God's love is, how good his care for us is, how good his promises to us are. It is good to be near God. And it is worth the ultimate cost and the ultimate commitment. He knows the price. He knows what he's calling you to because he's lived it himself. Here's here's what one writer said. uh, Every tear of loss that God inflicts on us is a tear whose cost he himself understands. See, he knows. He knows because he's been there. His call is clear. Trust him alone. Hold no hope but him. Yes, it's scary. Yes, it will be hard. But it is best. So suffer well. (laughs) What a strange thing to say. Suffer well. But that's the calling here. Know that if you trust Jesus, uh, trust what God has done for you in Jesus, that despite all your rejection, despite all the decisions that have you taken you away from him, he is bringing you back close. And even in your suffering, bringing you closer still, drawing you to himself. Now another, another writer puts it in this way, that the pain of God's chastening work is therefore never harsh. It is never more than is absolutely necessary to turn us to himself. Because that's what God wants most for us, isn't it? For you to be close to him, for you to receive in him everything that you need and more, for you to be full in him, not empty anymore. And he loves you enough to do whatever it takes for that to be true for you. Suffering is called to bring us back to God. It's not a punishment for us. It is discipline. It is an opportunity to return. It's not saying to you, you're you're further from God than anyone else, so we need to desperately bring you back. It's saying, come closer still. Know me better still. I mean, suffering, suffering forces us, doesn't it, to, to look at ourselves harder, to look at ourselves more honestly and, and ask those questions. Have I been wandering for God? How close am I actually to God? I mean, actually, we get a good hint of how close we are when we, how, when we see how we respond initially to suffering, don't we? What's been taking me from God? Now, maybe, maybe you can testify to this. Oh, no, I certainly can. But, but when I've suffered, when I've gone through hard and difficult times, I've seen things in my life that I wouldn't other have seen otherwise, not nice things. Places where I've been trusting myself, not God. Places where I've been ignoring God and, and living apart from God. And it's been his call, come back. Don't waste your suffering. 
It is better to be near God. It is life and hope and meaning and joy and fullness. It is a best that nothing can take away. Because no matter your life circumstances, God is constant. And so constant, he will use even life's difficulties to bring you closer. Jesus has opened the way. So trust him and draw near to him because he is best for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good. You are our Father who loves us, who shows your grace and mercy in abundance to us. Lord, we have wandered from you. We've rejected you. We've tried to find our own path and it has ended us in disaster. It has promised us nothing but death. And Lord, yet you still loved us. You loved us so much that you sent Jesus in order to forgive what we'd done, in order to make it possible for us to return to you. Father, how good you are. We praise you for your goodness and your love for us. Lord, help us to trust that it is in fact best for us to be near you. That that is the very best thing we could ever have. Help us to trust this, though that it requires great commitment. Help us to trust this even when we suffer. Help us to trust this even when the path might be hard. That it is good to be near you. Help us to prize that. And when we suffer, seek to be even closer to you than ever. Help us, we pray. Show grace and mercy to us in abundance. In Jesus, our Saviour's name. Amen.